Hello, and welcome to today's podcast titled Educators as Learners. My name is Kristen Barber, and I am the Executive Director of the National Institute for Learning Development. And it is my privilege to have with me on this podcast three other guest presenters who are going to become an integral part of the podcast going forward. And so we're going to spend just a few minutes introducing ourselves and then getting into the topic of today's podcast risk-taking and transparency. So a little bit more about myself. I have been an educator since 1995 in a variety of contexts. Hospitals, K-12, education settings, community services boards, nonprofits, higher ed. And I started my education journey, I would say, as an undergraduate in human services and then proceeded to get a graduate degree in education with an emphasis in speech and language pathology, and then just completed a doctorate in education at the Johns Hopkins University. But you know, in reflecting on this podcast and thinking about when did I really become involved in education, I think it's a lifelong experience for me, even as a child, having the opportunity to be involved in a family where my parents were educators and there was a high value placed on education, then becoming a participant in sports teams and educating my peers, being a, a leader on the team uh, and the various levels of, of athletics where I played. And so I'm excited to be here with my colleagues and friends today, just talking about education and how are we continual lifelong learners in education. So next, let me introduce and welcome Dr. Carrie Borkowski. Carrie, share a little bit about yourself with us. Sure. Thanks, Kristen and Brianna and Paul. It's always good to chat with you. Um, I, like you, Kristen, feel like for many reasons I've been an educator at heart. Maybe as a kid I didn't name it that. Um, I did a lot of athletics as a kid, so I always sort of felt like I had that feeling or desire to be a coach of some sort. Um, so I um, you know, I got a graduate degree, decided um, I was lucky enough to, to teach at the, co the community college level with a master's degree, and honestly, partly out of a bucket list, but also to sort of advance my own career, I went and got a PhD, and that helped me to move into, you know, the university sort of setting. Um, won't go into too much detail, but yes, I did get a second doctorate in education. <laughs> I know it's crazy. Um, I, you know, honestly, a lot of higher ed faculty do not get training in education, and I really felt like that was something missing from my um, my own training. And and just again, Kristen, going back to this idea of being a lifelong learner, really feeling like I needed the strategies and theory, um, and so I did that. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm just happy to be here. I think um, even with uh, doctoral degrees, I can be honest and say that I was not the straight-A student. I was not the valedictorian. And in fact, I often joke with my students, I teach research methods and statistics, and those were not subjects that came easily to me. Um, and so I think part of me understands the struggle and the math nervousness, and I really wanted to help students access that information. And so I think that required me to always be a learner and to be really honest about my own expertise. So um, yeah, just looking forward to being here, Kristen. That's awesome. Paula, Paula Clark. Hi, hi, Carrie and Brianna and Kristen and, and everyone listening. Um, so I started my career um, in elementary school. Um, I'm currently a high school teacher now. And when I began teaching in elementary school, you know, learning was always like the rest of you, a part of my life. And I just continued to take more classes and get more certification, and I moved up through the ranks, um, moved to the middle school level, then moved to the high school level, and then continued to pursue my master's and, and now my doctorate degree. Um, so like many of you, learning has always been a part of my life. It's been important to me and to my family. Um, I read recently a little post about uh, someone that was reflecting on their teaching career, and they said, um, their teddy bears were the best educated teddy bears in their household. And I think the same is true of me because I remember as a young, um, young girl just playing school and teaching my dolls and, and then teaching my brother and sister. And it was just something that was always a part of my life. I really enjoy that moment when students get something and when they struggle and struggle and you just see that light and you just see that their confidence and you see their attitude change. And I think that's what pushes me to continue learning is, is to see um, what I can do to help each student along the way. 
That's awesome, Paula. If teddy bears could talk, I bet they'd have some incredible stories to tell. Sure. <laughs> Brianne, welcome. Let's hear from you. Thanks, Kristen. So uh, I'm an educator in higher ed, mostly undergraduate coursework, but also post-baccalaureate and graduate work for about 10 years. And before that, I had a clinical career. So I was a medical speech language pathologist, and I really focused on dysphagia and adult neurological disorders. And kind of thinking about myself as an educator, when I look back at my time at the hospital, my favorite and best days on the floors were spent teaching. So when I got to educate students and uh, nurses and medical personnel about what it is that we as speech language pathologists do in an acute care setting. I really enjoyed that a lot. So I, I think it's really always been about education, even in the context of that medical setting. And so professionally, I moved then and wanted to do a deeper dive. And so I uh, enrolled in this Hopkins program. And so I'm now a doctoral candidate. Congratulations. And, and here we are, four educators from different backgrounds expressing a commonality of educators as learners, as lifelong learners. And so as we think about today's topic, risk-taking and transparency, maybe we need to start this deep dive into these thoughts about how did we get to where we are as educators, as learners? Was, was there a critical turning point or a crossroads that really created a paradigm shift in how you view yourself as a learner and as an educator? And anyone can throw their hat in the ring here for starting us off. Yeah, I mean, I so I'll jump in, Kristen. I mean, first, I, I have to go back. I was I was muted, but Paula, I love the story about the teddy bears. I was imagining that we all have the best educated stuffed animals and figures, probably, um, of of most people. So thanks for that uh, image, um, Kristen. I don't know if I can like point to one you know significant moment, but um, I know in thinking about preparing for this podcast, I remembered as a a, a new faculty member um, teaching statistics. And I remember writing out every single word that I was anticipating I was going to say and in the margins trying to anticipate the questions that I thought students were going to have because my biggest fear as an early teacher was that I wasn't going to have the answer. Even though I had spent years in undergrad and master's degree studying this stuff, I was still so worried about not being prepared. And I think for me, the turning point was recognizing that um, I didn't need to have all the answers, that I was prepared. You know, my reading of the material, my practicing of the, the statistical procedures was my preparation. Um, and the other thing I think I learned, um, partly just from trial and error, is that when you make a mistake in class, I mean, look, I teach statistics. And so when you write, in, in the olden days, when we wrote things on the chalkboard, I'm sure, Paula, as a math teacher, you have experienced this too. I always made a math mistake. I mean, I just like trying to do it on the fly. And I used to get so flustered about it. And then I realized, you know what? That's just showing your humanness. And the students, I actually think, really appreciated showing that we are also fallible. <laughs> and so for me, recognizing that there was actually value and learning in me making mistakes um, really empowered me to sort of let go of writing down all my notes and trusting myself a little bit. Um, but I also think trusting my students, right, that they're part of the learning process too, the teaching process too, um, and just trusting the group together. So It's interesting, Carrie, that you said one of the turning points for you was realizing that you didn't have the answer. Because I think I think maybe a turning point for me was when I realized that, or I thought that maybe I did have all the answers. I remember starting teaching. Um, I had a class of 39 second graders. That was my first year. And I remember thinking, I have the right way to do this. And I know the right way. And I've been trained. And, and it wasn't that I was like overconfident or felt like I was the only one that could reach them. But I thought I had paid attention in school and I learned everything I should learn and I know the right way to teach them math or I know the right way to teach them reading. And as I progressed in my career, you know, I remember listening to another teacher teaching and I remember hearing her across the hall saying, um, I've shown you this five times. How do you not know it? I've shown it to you five times. And I kept thinking to myself, do I sound like that? Like, am I saying to those students, 
you know, why can't you get this? I showed it to you, but I'm only showing you one way. And so it made me take a step back and think like, I never want to say that to my students. And I want to find ways to reach them. And I want to realize that I don't have all the answers and that I need to see what's going to work for Johnny and Susie and Kimmy. And I need that, you know, that piece to be different for all of them. And so that's kind of what I think started me on this journey of like how I can be a better teacher at heart. So not just instruct them in math or, or reading or science, but how, how can I, how can I reach my students as individuals? That's a perfect segue. Thanks, Paula. <laughs> Unscripted, but great. Um, I think reaching the whole student. So beyond the math or in my case, the anatomy or whatever it is that I'm teaching, that was a turning point for me. It was when I, I guess, discovered that I, and came up with the courage, really, found the courage to teach beyond the curriculum, to look at my students and to, to bring a little bit more of myself into the classroom. And that was a hard thing for me to do because it was a risk. And, you know, it's pretty easy to, to stick to the curriculum and to, to stick with those anatomy and physiology lessons. But when we step back and say, you know, what is this patient really like? Let's think about this patient with who has had a stroke. Uh, what was this person like? Uh, their family's perspective. What was the what was the day before their stroke like? And how are things going to change from this point forward? Um, requires some humanness and requires a different level of attention and preparation and risk taking. Because to be honest, I can pretty much predict the types of questions that students are going to ask about the science, but I cannot predict the types of questions they will ask when we go down that other road. And and that kind of speaks to Carrie's point before of going in prepared, but also prepared to not know the answers. You know, such an important point about being prepared, but being willing to take those risks. And Brianne, you said you were ready and kind of could anticipate the types of questions your students would ask in, in one particular way. I think for me, a turning point is, is I was always very concerned. What types of questions would they ask? And that transparency of being vulnerable to say, I don't know the answer, even though I've studied and prepared. And so for me, the crossroads came when I stopped asking all of the time a question in response to their question to me. So they'd ask me a question, you know, Kristen, how do you, what syllable type is this in the multi-syllable word? And if I didn't know the answer, I would say, I don't know, what do you think? And so I was turning it back to them almost as a defensive deflection of, I don't know the answer, let's see if they can figure it out. But then I came to the realization, we're in this learning journey together and it's really okay to be transparent and vulnerable and say, I don't have the answer or I've made a mistake, I didn't give you the right answer to the question. I had a mentor who said, absolutely, the best learning opportunities were when mistakes occurred. Like Carrie, you said, when you put that mistake up on the board, not intentionally, it just happened because we're human, but that's when we can deconstruct and figure out where did the breakdown occur? Let's label the mistake and then let's learn from it and, and fix it going forward. So I think these are, are great anecdotal evidences that we've all been able to give. We're educators in various sectors. Let's, let's see if we can share some of those evidence in practice that we've had in the the various sectors where we've been because our real goal with this podcast is to connect with you the educators as well not only is it a conversation between four educators who are lifelong learners but it's helping the listeners to think through what does it look like for me in the classroom what experiences have I had as an educator in my context where I've needed to be um, transparent or it would have helped my practice if I had taken a risk so so maybe Paula you want to start us on this one evidence and practice with teachers either with risk-taking or being transparent or struggling with that yeah and I think I think um I think in the k-12 setting and I've taught at the second grade sixth grade Eighth, seventh grade, eighth grade, all the way up. So, and, and I and I think of myself back in those settings, and how different I am now, um, based on where I was in my early career. And I think, you know, for the K twelve teacher, you go into that setting, and there's there's so many. Um, eyes on you. So the students are anticipating, you know, what are you going to teach them? The parents are questioning, the administrators are questioning, and, and it's kind of this fear of, you know, I don't want to make a mistake because I'm the authority in the classroom. I'm the one that's supposed to have all those answers, speaking of having all the answers. And so I think that teachers don't want to readily admit 
that they don't know something um, because I think it's taken them a long time throughout history to establish this teaching as an important career and they, and they wanna they want to feel that you know they're the ones in the classroom that that can help these students and to say I don't know the answer is kind of is frightening for many of them um, so I think you know when, when teachers are faced with that you know it's easy with the little kids it's easy because you do have the answers a lot of the content level answers but for me what really came along was I don't have the answers to reach every student so again going back to that it's not about the content I might have for say a seventh grader all the math answers but I don't know how to reach this student who came to me that didn't have breakfast or this student who came to me from a broken home or this student who just defies everything I say and you know the student that I can't seem to reach and, and do I want to turn to my administrators and to my fellow teachers or to their parents and say I'm sorry I can't reach your students so so it's almost out of fear of of not knowing what to do that teachers are afraid to take risks so if they follow the script if they follow the pacing guide if they follow what their administrators put out as their curriculum they feel safe so it's that that, that kind of safety net Paula don't you think I mean I'd love to circle back and Kristen I'm sorry if you had an agenda I'm gonna wreck it for you um <laughs> this this whole notion of like having the right answer because it, it makes me wonder like what's the paradigm that we're using here like what's what's the role of the teacher right is it really to like come to this right answer like a in Massachusetts, it's the MCAS, right? So it's the it's the test. I mean, to me, what you're describing is the teacher or the educator is really responsible for helping the student sort of navigate the learning and the curiosity, right? And I, and I wonder if what you described this like knowing that they have to follow this rubric in this curriculum, it's a to me it's a paradox because on the one hand it creates a safety. But on the other hand, I think that is the source of the scariness, right? Because it so boxes teachers in and it's if I divert, if a student doesn't respond to that, then what do I do, right? And so, and I think the other thing, and Brianne and I talked about this and I'd love to hear you, you guys talk about it is what you're describing about your students, Paula, I don't think we ever as educators talk with our teachers about this. Like, Teacher A might learn in this way and be able to sort of grab onto this technique, but teacher B doesn't get it when we talk about it this way, right? Like we don't, we don't personalize the professional learning for our teachers in the way that we're supposed to for our students. Um, I don't know. I'm just wondering what you think about that sort of, the sort of balance between the account accountability and tests and creating structure versus creating a, an environment of creativity, right? Or like encouraging that. Yeah, and I, I do think, um, you know, it's interesting because we've had a lot of talk at my school recently about um, the difference between teachers in high stakes tested subjects and teachers that aren't. And, and you really do see a different approach and a different attitude. And, and I know I was looking recently at some research by Wayne Owl, I think it was 2017, and, and he uh, did a study where he said, um, you know, the teachers in these high stakes, high stakes testing areas were really using that as a sense of control. So they were going back to the rotes, you know, here's the curriculum, here's what I'm going to do. And they were relying on that, you know, obviously out of this accountability measure. Um, whereas you see teachers that aren't in tested subject areas where they're trying all kinds of new things. And, and it does need to be a shift. We all need to do that. And I think it comes down to you know, are we focusing only on content or are we focusing on developing a learner? And really, I think our goal is to develop a learner. Um, I always considered myself a teacher. So above a content specialist, I'm a teacher. So, so yes, I would have to learn the content and content is very important, but you know, I, I might be able to go into a science class and really come up with a cool way to teach a science topic, even though I'm a math teacher. So I see myself as a teacher above all. And I think if our focus is on students, as learners rather than you know developing little content specialists out of our students really they should just be learners how do you learn anything you know if we could teach them to learn anything and just that skill I think that's that's where we need to be um, but I think it is that struggle between okay but that's not what we're gonna be accountable for that's not what the community is gonna look at us for you know our school in particular right now has had tremendous growth in closing the gap but they don't look at that the report card says you didn't pass this achievement test so so it's really that focus on let's focus on growing you know teachers as growing learners students as growing um our community as growing not just the performance did we make the bar did we make the mark 
I think in higher ed, I mean, the idea of accountability is certainly relevant across education, but I'm not really worried about high stakes testing. That doesn't exist as, as much in my context. However, there certainly is accountability and that, is, and, and what I'm being looked at and me, you know, faculty are being looked at really is in terms of scholarship and research versus teaching. And we know from work by Fairweather and others that even in schools that are not R1 schools, so liberal arts institutions that, you know, have a, t a strong teaching focus that actually promotion and compensation are based largely on scholarship and publication. So that, that's, what, that's the high stakes element of our work, I think. Um, and that really makes us pull away from teaching because where's the incentive? I mean, if, you, if you're an educator at heart, that is great. And I think we're trying to do a very good job. But at the end of the day, what our supervisors are looking at and administrators are looking at really is a lot of scholarship and research, you know, and publication in addition to that teaching. Yeah, and I think where this conversation, an excellent conversation is taking us is about some of the, the micropolitics in education. What, what's the environment surrounding and creating this culture for the learners in that culture? And the learners in the culture are, are not just the students, it's also the educators in the building, the administrators. There's so many key stakeholders involved in education. And, and I was recently reading Willower's work that was just doing some an examination of micropolitics in education. And, you know, what do teachers value? And, and the top two that are coming out are teachers value autonomy, that they, they want to know that they have control of their classrooms, that they have the ability, like Paula said, to instruct in the ways that are, are personalizing, like, uh, um, Carrie said, the learning for the students, but they also value time and the ability to get across um, the learning objectives and learning experiences. Hopefully they are uh, more and more uh, real world contextually based learning experiences, but what's that environment that's created for them in which they operate and the pressure of staying inside the box versus outside of the box? Uh, for example, I, I was recently at a, an a international industry conference and for several days, you know, going around all of the exhibits, listening to the presenters speak, and then interacting with the participants and hearing their feedback. And over and over again, they said their feedback was, you've given us data for three to four days. You've shown us what's working, what's not working. You've given us um, curriculum. But teach us how to get to the students. Teach us those approaches and those ways in which to connect relationally with them, the ways in which to push through some of the barriers that are hindering their ability to learn and just feeling so inadequate or ill-equipped to meet the needs of learners, the 21st century learners in their, their various contexts. So so maybe, you know, do we want to do we want to spend any more time just kind of talking about sort of evidence and practice or do we want to say well what does the literature say you know we were just talking about data how can we support either this idea of what the environment or you know Paula you were bringing up this idea of teachers as a profession and you know where did it begin and you know sort of servants of the community and you know I don't know Carrie if you want to talk a little bit about some of the history you think of meta and you know is education a profession and have we defined ourselves as professionals and what's the core knowledge so maybe we can just have a bit of a discussion about that yeah I mean I had a couple of thoughts Kristen when you were, were chatting one certainly going back to Brianne's point regarding um, the sort of research you know the research sort of being king i mean i think that speaks to the, the this question about profession um because there is a lot of literature and right now i can't bring any to mind but i i can find some if you're if our audience wants to hear it um but this notion that you know research was always a complement and a support to teachers and so it's never been that that teaching was sort of this separate important function as in your profession. It was that if you were a good researcher and an expert, you could of course walk into the classroom and disseminate that. And so I think that, you know, in higher ed in particular, um, being a teacher or a clinical faculty is some of the language is not sort of acknowledged in the way that we would like it to be. So I think that speaks to it. Um, the other thing that came up for me, Kristen, when you were talking, going back to this idea of teachers really wanting autonomy in their classroom, I think the piece that goes with that, if we could connect another stakeholder, which is leadership, 
right? In order for teachers to really have true autonomy, leaders have to trust the teachers. Um, and I think the frustration for me is that I just, when I work at, at my, in my current context with practitioners, they don't always feel like leadership trusts them. And this goes back to Paula's point about we have these curriculums and these strategies and these competencies because we don't necessarily trust teachers. And I just, um, I was telling Brianne this morning, I was reading a report. There's a new book out. Um, it's called No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotion at Work. Um, and it's, it was, and it references this Google study that was done a couple of years ago where they looked at why do high performing teams succeed? And what they found is that it's not the who in the team, it's the how. And they talked a lot about psychological safety. And what that means is this idea that you could, you could take risk without embarrassment, there would be creativity without insecurity, and you could be vulnerable. And so... Teachers may want control, but I also think they're asking for permission from leadership to give them a chance to try things, to do what Paula said, not just check a box with competency, but to sort of explore the process of learning. Because, Paula, I totally agree with you. I mean, Brianne, you're right. In higher ed, we don't have the same kind of accountability. But if there's one thing I hope to impart to my students is that they're able to ask really good questions. Right? They don't, in doctoral studies, you don't take tests, but I want you to be able to read a new stats textbook or pick up a research methods article and be able to figure out how to understand that, even if we didn't cover that particular topic in the course. And so that's a very different approach to, to learning with students than it is sort of like taking the MCAS, right? And I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts and for us to think, you know, for the audience about how do we, how do we realize that? Because I, I, I have a kid who's in an elementary school and I have a, I'm privileged enough to work on an um, advisory board with the principal and it's really hard. I mean, they have so many structures in place that they have to check boxes. It's really hard to sort of empower them to do the things we're talking about. So I think it's important that we talk about those things. And Carrie, just as you were talking, what came to mind, um, NILD's former executive director wrote a book, Teaching How to Learn in a What to Learn Culture, Dr. Kathy Hopkins. And that book has really resonated with educators across the U.S. and internationally because it's giving them the freedom in this space to think about creativity, intellectual curiosity, asking those questions, um, you know, giving, giving the process of learning almost a higher valuation than the product of learning. And so having that space to explore and how does that fit in within our um, K-12 classrooms and maybe even higher education where there are learning objectives and standards we've got to reach. But what we're finding is, is when teachers have the space, the environment, the, the autonomy, and the time to work towards teaching students how to learn, the outcomes are even stronger for the student outcomes rather than just teaching them to the test, like what you were saying. In higher ed, if you teach them how to read an article and ask questions, even if you didn't cover it in class, they're going to be able to come at it from a different perspective or link it to prior knowledge in a new way that deepens their understanding of the information. Well, and I, and I think going along with what both you, Kristen and Carrie are saying is, you know, I think there is a push in K to 12 education where we really want students to become, you know, um, good evaluators of knowledge and question things and, and really investigate. Um, but what's interesting when you mentioned leadership is that, you know, we see that that's what we want in our student learners, but the leaders don't want that in their teachers. So, so it's kind of like what we're asking our teachers to do with their students. We're allowing, we want our students to be able to explore. We want them to be able to discover. We want them to be able to synthesize information. But we're not necessarily given the permission to do that. So, so we have like these two sets of standards. So in terms of teach, thinking of teachers as learners, you know, as learners, we're not given that same latitude that we want to have, want for our students. And, and I think that's a problem. And, you know, Vanessa Rodriguez wrote an article about the teaching brain. And there's a couple of interesting things I was reading it um, again last night. And a couple of interesting things that came up was that um, she says that universally, everyone has some type of a teaching brain. So even from when you're very young, like even if you teach your brother or your sister or someone how to play a game, you all have this teaching brain. 
and that it's universal, but I don't know that it's universal. Um, I think that some of us have it more than others, and maybe that's where your true teachers are. Um, but another thing that comes out in the article is that, you know, the learning brain, the teaching brain, these two brains are different, um, but they're both very dynamic. And so we're not developing that side in teachers. We're not developing their teaching brain. You know, we're giving them tools and saying these tools are good and these tools are good and these, but it's not about the tool. It's about the person using the tool. And I think on the higher ed side, you know, if we think about teachers as learners and, you know, everything you're talking about, Paula, I think that time is so critical. So going back to those two factors that Krista mentioned, autonomy for sure. And I think that we have a gift of more autonomy in higher ed than, than K-12 for sure um, in terms of curriculum and kind of what we do each day in class. However, um, time is another, you know, variable that, that we're lacking. And I think we need time in two ways. We need time to experiment in class, for lack of a better word, and try new things with our students. And I enjoy working with adult learners in higher ed because I am very open with them and I say this is a new project and this is what we're doing and this is the rationale and I'm really looking forward to your feedback and halfway through we're going to have a touch you know a touch uh, data touch base and see how it's going and we may make some changes so kind of a uh, improvement science approach almost to to an experiment the other place that we need time I think is to collaborate with one another and that's where we would need it from the university side and so kind of thinking about the cycle of action and reflection it's not enough really to just try things we also then have to touch base with one another and say I tried this in my context this is what worked well this is what didn't you know maybe we could problem solve a little bit and Clark and Hollingsworth talk about the value of action and reflection for adult learners in a professional development context and I just had a meeting this morning with faculty and all of us just said oh my gosh it's so nice to sit together and to have just 45 minutes to talk about what we all tried and we all had different experiences with it and it was really valuable and I think that we will all try something a little bit different in the spring semester as a result of that meeting. Yeah, Kristen, I was just going to say, I mean, if we're, I know one, I feel like one goal of, of this work we're doing together is to sort of, you know, come up with action items, right, like ways to implement and, and one thing I'm hearing, you know, Paula and Brianne and you speak of is, and I think this is, um, it could be relevant across multiple contexts is really shifting our view of what professional learning is, right? So often it's, oh, there's a new strategy. Often right now it's technology, right? Like integrating technology and you spend an hour or two with this piece of technology or this new app. And so I think our listeners and us as educators when you either are getting ready to attend a professional learning or design a professional learning, I think we should really think about shifting it from training to self-work. If for I know that sounds very self-helpy, but like just like doing the work ourselves, like going back to Paula's point, we are asking teachers to impart particular skills in our students, and we do not give educators, including ourselves, the space to do our own work. And how can we ask an individual authentically to go into a classroom and teach our young people these skills if we're not given the time to do our own work? So even things like um, goal setting, I mean, goals, there's lots of research on goal setting, I mean, doing goal setting with teachers, like what are your goals for the year? Like not, not your goals for your students, your goals for you. Like, what do you want to do personally and professionally and how can this school or this nonprofit or, you know, this space align with what you want to do or how can we make that work? Um, and just thinking about um, critical reflection and discourse, right? If there's something that you're worried about, um, really helping teachers to build skills and how you do really critically reflect, giving them time to do that individually and together, and then having the discourse, right? Because as Brienne mentioned, discourse and like naming and attending to whatever it is does so much. Because if you, if I know that Brienne is feeling the way I'm feeling about something new, then like there's a shared experience there and you can move forward together. So I really think one thing, and maybe we can pick this up at a later podcast, is really how do we think about professional learning? Like how could we shift the way in which we design and offer professional learning. So it's not just disseminating stuff. It's really giving teachers chance to do the work that they want to do personally and professionally. 
And Carrie, what you speak of reminds me of Calvert's work on agency that te teachers or educators are taking ownership of as I have self-evaluated, this is what I see or are the areas where I really want to strengthen or I believe I'm already strong and I want to go deeper. <clears throat> I'll never forget one of my first mentors came in I was teaching language arts to a fourth grade class of urban students. And he said, um, Kristen, have you videotaped yourself teaching? And have you spent time watching yourself teaching? And oh, P.S., by the way, have you had your students draw you? And um, why don't you take a uh, look at what your students' pictures look like? And it was transformational. You know, one student drew me with this, you know, this was back in the 90s with this huge hair and, you know, mouth wide open. And wow, you know, was I talking that loudly and was that forceful of a person? And so, you know, are we taking time to stop and reflect and, and the agency over our learning? And as we've been thinking about this podcast and having our conversations, we've been just informally asking different people. And, and so you in the audience, we'd love you to ask, we'd love to ask you this question. Do you see yourself as a learner? And I'll never forget two early responses that, that Carrie and I got from people. The first response was, teacher as a learner? I never thought of myself as a learner. And this was a career history, long history of teaching. And then another person that we asked, do you th think of yourself, teacher as a learner, said, every time I teach, I learn. Vastly polar opposite differences. And I'm sure all of us in any given point in time would fall somewhere along the spectrum and we would move up and up and back along that spectrum. But great thoughts about agency, learning. Uh, Paula or Brianne, any, any other comments about those pieces? I was talking with a first year doc student last week about the program and about where she is and kind of how, how the experience has been so far. And she was quiet and then she said it's just so humbling because the more I learn the more I realize how much I have to learn and I know exactly how she feels and I think that that's you know kind of inherent in this doctoral journey but that aside just every day I think the more we authentically engage with our students the more we will realize that there is more to learn and we can reach them differently and there are different approaches that we can be exploring. Yeah, and I agree with you too, Brian. I, I think that reflection piece is so huge, and I think some teachers do it naturally. I remember being forced to do it, you know, when you were early on in your career, like write down this reflection, how'd your lesson go, and, and it always seemed so like contrived, but now it, it's really the most valuable piece. You walk out of the classroom, and you know if it went well, and you know if it didn't, and you have questions for yourself that you know, and, and to your point, Carrie, we don't have time to go and talk to somebody else and say, what do you think about this? Like the day is over and everyone's gone. So, so I really think that that reflective piece is a good place to start, you know, getting teachers together and reflecting on your lessons and, and, and leaning on each other for advice. Yeah, Paul, I'm glad you mentioned that because, um, having done a lot of work in service learning when people say, cause reflection is a, a very big part of the service learning pedagogy. You often get the collective eye roll right in the, in the audience. But I think it's because um, we often don't know how to, how to do reflection well. And so I hope that um, what maybe will come out of this podcast or some of our discussions is, you know, I feel like we've figured out a lot of the academics in terms of like how to, disseminate and teach different content. I mean, we're still learning every day, but I think what we could learn from those experiences is that we could also develop a set of sort of curricula, if you will, around critically reflecting and self-growth and support and just, you know, I feel like for so long it's been sort of, oh yeah, 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 it's an afterthought, like you should be reflecting on that, but we really need to be spending intentional time on that other piece. I mean, Kristen, back to your point, you know, asking people if they saw themselves as a learner, what you're really talking about is identity, right? Identity development. And there's so much, I mean, Piper and Baker, there's a 2016 article talking about professional, personal, and relational identity. And a lot of their discussion is how your context, the environment, and those relationships, you know, result in your identity. And if we're not cultivating a learner identity, well, it's not just going to magically appear. And so just as we intentionally teach people algebra or teach people anatomy, which I avoided as a student, um, we should also be cultivating and facilitating the identity development. I mean, we should be purposeful and intentional. It's not just going to happen because you, you know, bump into it or something. And I think that's, 
I don't know. I think those are the conversations that I love to be a part of and would like to have thought partners about how to make that happen in our spaces. So I, I really like that. In fact, as we were talking, Carrie, I just thought like, what would it be like if tomorrow instead of somebody asking you, Oh, what do you do? And you say, I'm a teacher. If you said I'm a learner, like just, just that shift would be really cool just to, just to experiment with. Exactly. Exactly. And, and what you ladies are talking about is could we come up with or discuss some, some strategies to think about ourselves as learners, to think about this, this topic of risk-taking and transparency, and what would it mean? You know, what, what are some of the strategies that, you know, whether we answer a question with, what do you do? Well, I'm a, I'm a learner rather than a teacher. Are there some other ideas? You know, one of the things that's been really capturing my attention is Keegan's work about um, immunities to change. And why is it that we are so resistant, even when we say, because I bet every one of us on this podcast, everybody listening would say, I'm a learner. I'm in the profession of education because I believe in learning. I believe learning produces great change. But why is it that I'm resistant to change my methodology, my approach, my ways of connecting with students? And so what is it through, through critical um, reflection, through discourse, that I can really begin to label my immunities to change? What's creating me um, or what's producing that barrier in me from making those changes? I think, Kristen, I think one other, one other thing that came to mind, um, and I'm a a fangirl of Brene Brown, I'm happy to admit it. Um, but in her Dare to Lead book, she talks a lot about as an organization and as individuals sort of naming your values. And one thing she says is that organizations spend too much time making a really long list of values. And so it kind of dilutes their focus. And so I think another actionable piece as an individual, and in Dare to Lead, she actually gives you a list of sort of the words that could be values. She says, don't pick 10, don't pick 15, focus on two. And so I think as, a, as an educator, as a learner, as a leader, just sort of being intentional about what is it that you think are your values and how do you like live those values each day, right? How are you in your classrooms and with your colleagues? Um, for me, I picked curiosity and authenticity. So how do I emote that? in everything I do, even if it's at a very simple level. And so I think, again, doing that critical reflection, um, I just, I mean, I could get on my soapbox about how much I care about identity development because I ma it matters to me so much. And in higher ed, especially with the advent of, not the advent, but the continuing exponential growth of online education, the thing that we really struggle with is how do we support students with those sort of so-called wraparound services that they used to get by just walking down this campus to the student affairs or student services center because they don't have those. And so a lot of students are isolated. And so, you know, thinking about our faculty who are remote, our students who are remote, and, and it's, to me, it's all about intentionality. So I think the first thing we have to do is, what is it that you wanna be intentional about? Name it and then come up with, you know, one or two strategies to achieve that. Because again, it's not going to happen just for, by some tacit, you know, handshake or implicit something or some happenstance. You really have to enact it. Um, and I just, yeah, so. Well, and, and, and hearing you talk about, um, about leadership and about embracing what, what you feel strongly about, I think, you know, maybe one of the steps that we could take is, is, is we recognize that sometimes leadership doesn't allow us to be learners and experiment and take risks. But, but you know, starting this from the ground up, maybe if we do see ourselves as learners and we spread it among our colleagues and, and we go out and seek those opportunities. So we feel it's important to observe one another and reflect on it or have somebody observe our lesson and reflect on it. And we start that and do it in small incremental steps. You know, it doesn't have to come from the leadership. It can come from us. And, and maybe we just grab that bull by the horn and take the leadership, you know, and, and own it ourselves. And if that's what we're passionate about and being learners, we just have to start spreading that as teachers. Carrie, when you said that there are those two words, immediately the first word that I thought of was connection. And I haven't come up with my second yet, but connection was, it was immediate. Um, and I think that part of the challenge in higher ed with, with establishing these, these strong connections with our students is that there's sort of a traditional lecturer-student identity and role. And by, you know, 
to circle back to the beginning of the conversation by extending beyond the curricular requirements in class by you know engaging in deeper conversations and maybe even moving toward identity development and things like that um, we're pushing that boundary for sure beyond just the lecturer of and you know imparting information but I think that it's really important and I think that our students need social support from various sources so they have their friends they have their families uh, they have a lot of connection because of technology but they're also feeling really lonely and very isolated and we know that faculty can provide social support um, and advisors as well so work by Watkins and Hill suggests that students in college really need a variety of of support and I I don't know that they can learn effectively without it to be honest with you um, that I'm, I'm discovering this in my own dissertation research that that stress is so prevalent for students and it really inhibits their ability to relax and engage and learn and what they say is that when they feel connected with faculty they're able to relax and they're able to become a little bit more curious because they trust that the faculty member has their best intentions and their their success at heart and that they can move forward and learn new things and I think that that connection is essential to really to to teach effectively but there's no way to do that without me learning first I have to learn what it is that my students need and I have to learn strategies to do it yeah and Brianna I think what everything that you just said also applies to the educator right like it's not just the student who's taking the courses but it's the person who's supposed to be teaching the courses and I think we often forget that um, and I wonder Kristen if we could, you know, sort of not challenge, challenge sounds like a rough word, but just like encourage our listeners to think one, to Paula's point, think about that shift from teacher to learner. And if you were to think about yourself as a learner, what sort of value system is required for that, for that to happen, for that to be realized. So like going back to sort of this idea, Brianne came up with her first word of connect, connection or connectedness. Um, but maybe, you know, our audience could think about one or two words. And I know Bre um, Brene Brown has that list. Maybe we could find the link to it because she makes it public. We could share that list and, you know, see what, what part of your value system aligns already with being a learner and what you might adopt intentionally to bring that learner sort of I don't know, to the forefront, perhaps. I thought it was, when I did it, I thought it was a really fun and interesting exercise, so. So I'm hearing you sort of throw down the gauntlet, Carrie, and I think it's perfect. <laughs> it's this clarion call to action, because if we're, if we're inert and we've not got, you know, not got motion and moving and changing, this is for ourselves as well. So that challenge of, you know, we can certainly make public Brene Brown. Those listening will have the articles that we cited or that we mentioned in our conversation. We'll have those available to you for reading, for your reading pleasure and um, get Brene Brown's list of values out there. And, and as you ladies were, were speaking, the two words that came to my mind in this nonprofit educational setting that, that I'm currently in, the first one is stewardship. Am I stewarding the, the profession, the knowledge, the relationship that we have with the adult learners, with the students, and um, being a conduit of information, but also stewarding that I'm on this learning journey with them, and we're in this together. And then the, the other ideas that come to mind, and maybe this is because of the, the recent work that I've been doing in my dissertation, is how do I have a growth mindset? How do I, who tend to be very performance-driven and performance-oriented, be okay with making mistakes? How do I value them as the best learning opportunities and not have to hold myself to this perfectionistic, unrealistic expectation and say, yeah, that was, you know, how did I fail beautifully today and why was it beautiful and, and how has it changed me as a person? And I can see we're, we're laughing with one another because it's hard. It's a challenge to do. Yeah, I was going to say, when you figure that one out, Kristen, you need to do a whole hour on that, and I will listen intently over and over again. <laughs> I think that'll be publishable when we figure it out. We'll, we'll write a book on it. The yeah. Fab Four. Yeah. <laughs> So, so just as we're, we're coming to a close here, I want to make sure that, that we've all had a chance to, to share any final thoughts. But we hope that as you've been listening today, you will feel a sense of connectedness with us, as Brienne, to use that word, a sense of belonging. We as educators have not arrived. We are working on figuring it out. We absolutely love 
the art and science of education and teaching and understanding ourselves as learners, others as learners. And so we, uh, we welcome you back to further podcasts that we'll be having. But let's just see if, if anybody else would want to um, share some closing thoughts today. Paula, you don't have a closing thought? <laughs> I'm trying to formulate one. <laughs> Chris and I just want to say thank you to you for having this. And as always, Brianna and Paula, it's really fun to be on this journey. I would just echo what you said, Kristen, this idea that I'm always a work in progress. And so I feel like every conversation that we have, um, you know, is sort of moving me forward and maybe the next one move me backward but I think moving forward and backward is always a you know I'm, I'm into those disorienting dilemmas that Mesero talks about and I love the opportunity to critically reflect on those disorienting feelings and um, and learn from you guys so I hope that our audience will feel that way um, a few times when they're listening so thank you I think I would just say that I really appreciate this. So I appreciate the time that we get to spend preparing for these podcasts and for talking with one another because I think that it is this action and reflection, you know, we're, we're living it, we're doing it, we're modeling it. And so um, I appreciate the opportunity to, to really be, be an active teacher as a learner with you all. While Paula is formulating her thoughts, I'm going to throw out there to any of our listeners Bonus points. We'll give you store credit to the NILD store if you listen to the podcast and write down all the reference titles that were listed so that we can know which ones we need to include. Because otherwise, one of the four of us, we're going to need to listen to this. But you know what? Because we're learners, I bet we're all going to listen to this multiple times and say, oh, I wish I had said this or here was an opportunity to say that. But we'll know what our next podcast will be all about. And, and we're, we're excited. This is our first one. We're learning from this and learning with you in this. And so we welcome your feedback. If you have ideas of topics that you would like us to discuss, feel free. Email those in. Kristen Barber at NILD.org. K-R-I-S-T-I-N. B-A-R-B-O-U-R at NILD.org. And we'd be happy to consider your ideas for our upcoming podcast. Paula, here's your chance going in one, two, three. Oh, my, my chance to end, right? I have to be the last one. Nice. Um, so I guess really just reflecting on what everybody said, you know, I, I really value, I think, in my own classroom, the idea of um, a sociocultural perspective of learning. And I think kids learn best when there is discourse. And then I think our talk today, you know, kind of led us to the realization that teachers learn best that way. And we really need to engage with each other. And this just this podcast is an example. It just energizes me um, to go out tonight, think about it some more, bring it back to my teacher. So our conversation together, I mean, every, every conversation that we have at any level is a learning experience. And I think that's truly what it's all about. Well said. And with that, thanks for listening. We will announce our next upcoming podcast, the date and the topic, and we look forward to you joining us. Thanks again.